Author Paul Tripp writes these words concerning this psalm. What is the overriding worldview of this psalm? It is that every human being has been hardwired by God to live in daily awe of him. This means the deepest and most life-shaping practical daily motivation of every human being was designed to live in awe of God. I love that sense. I love the idea where he says that we have been hardwired by God to live daily in awe of him. In other words, we have this built-in craving inside of us for awe, whether we realize it or not. This is one of the reasons why every single day all over the world, there, will, there are people who will take time out of their day to stop and watch a sunset, to take it in, to take in the beauty of it. Now, for those of us who are believers, it reminds us of the awesomeness of God, that every single day he's painting a new scene, giving us a glimpse of his glory. Now, for the unbeliever, They are captivated by it, even though they want to deny the source of it. But we know where it comes from. And this is really what the psalmist is getting at here, is that God's works inspire awe of God. And I want you to notice that this psalm is laid out as a series of responsive statements to the awesomeness of God, and not commands to be captivated by the awesomeness of God. This is responsive. Notice again, verse 1, he says, I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. That's responsive language. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and his greatness is unsearchable. What's the psalmist doing? He's responding to the unsearchable greatness of God with praise and worship. And here's the idea. When our hearts are in the right place, when our hearts are fixed on God, awe of him is going to be the natural result of that. It's the natural result to just go, man, you are incredible. Notice how he continues in verse 4. He says, one generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. In other words, what he's telling us here is that being in awe is contagious. When you are in awe of something, you want to share it, right? It's one of the reasons why whenever I see a really cool surf video, I'll send it to Pastor Tyler and I'll send it to my uh, son-in-law, Scott, because both of them are avid surfers. And I'm like, check this out. This is incredible. Because when something is awesome, we want to inspire, we want to share it with others. And for us who are believers, we're to be in awe of God. You know, when my kids were younger, we took them on a trip to Wyoming with some friends to visit the Grand Teton National Park. 
And there amongst the, the park and these just majestic scenery and these incredible mountain peaks. And we, we took them to introduce them to the beauty of God's creation in that place. We wanted to share with them something that was amazing. We took some time out of our normal lives and our normal routine to get out of North County and go to somewhere that was different, that showed us a different side of the glory and the awesomeness of God. And we wanted to share that with them because being in awe of God is a contagious thing. You want to share it. In fact, you have to share it. You can't hold it in. Notice how he continues in verse 5. He says, I will meditate. I'm going to ponder, in other words. I'm going to really think about this. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. They shall utter the memory of your great goodness and shall sing of your righteousness. That is the normal response to the heart that is right with God. And it wants to meditate upon the splendor and the glory and the majesty of God's wonderful works. They want to talk about it. They want to share it. They want to sing like we often do. How great is our God? When our hearts are in that place of being awestruck, the normal outflow of our daily lives is this. We can't help but worship God. But therein lies the problem. You see, there are two things in our lives that we are constantly dealing with that rob us of being in awe of God. Two things that that we're constantly dealing with that rob us from being awestruck with who God is. What are those two things that rob us? One is our daily routines, and the other is the daily distractions. It's the circumstances that come into our lives, the problems, the trials, and the difficulties that move us from focusing on the awesomeness of God and only seeing the problem, the challenge that is right in front of us. Let me give you an example. Last week, my wife and I had the privilege of spending a week up in Lake Tahoe Some friends had blessed us with uh, 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 being able to stay at a resort up there for a a week. Now, I have not vacationed in Tahoe in 48 years. Hadn't been there in a really, really long time. In fact, the last time we vacationed there was I was 10 years old, and it was part of that trip that actually led to my dad becoming a Christian. That's a, a story for another time. But I forgot just how beautiful. How stunning it is there. And we had a wonderful week of bike riding and exploring. I mean, it was just awesome. But the day that we were leaving, we got on there to Highway 80, only to discover that there was some major construction that was going on. And so we were just crawling along. Just barely moving. We were just, just crawling. Did I, did I say crawling? I mean, we were just, just, I mean, like five miles an hour at the most. I mean, we're just, just moving along. And the whole time, 
I'm just getting more and more frustrated. Because I'm looking at the GPS on my phone that said that we were going to make it home in nine and a half hours. And suddenly it moved to 10. And then to 10 and a half. And then to 11 hours. And I'm sitting there and I am just seething. I am just getting so frustrated because you see, I am a planner. And I had planned how we were going to make it home and make it through L.A. at the perfect time to miss all of the traffic. (laughs) And we were going to get home in time to uh, see my grandson before he went to bed. And we might have even made it home where I could take my little dog for a walk before it got dark. And I was like, this was my plan. This was my agenda. And now it was getting all messed up. And as we were inching our way through the traffic, inching, did I say crawling? I mean, we were, I'm barely moving. Inside, in my mind and heart, I am cursing Caltrans, okay? <laughs> Anybody else ever done that? You know, I'm like, I'm like just cursing, like, like, what are they doing? Don't they know that they should be, if you work for Caltrans, I am sorry. But, but I'm thinking like, you know, don't they know they should be doing this work at nights? When there's less people on the road, less people to inconvenience, like me, what are they doing? I mean, whoever's in charge should be fired. I'm having this conversation in my, in my mind the whole time, okay? Just getting madder by the minute. Like, like my whole trip, the whole week was going to be ruined by this getting stuck in traffic. I know, pray for me, all right, okay? You know what I should have been doing? The slowness of the drive as we were inching away was giving me a perspective that I didn't have when we drove up through there and we were going really fast. I mean, suddenly I I could really focus on if I wanted to. I mean, the beauty. I should have had my phone out and taking pictures and going, oh, look at that and check that out. That's how slow we were going, Okay. But I was so distracted by the problem in front of me and how my agenda was being ruined by this construction traffic. And here's what's really interesting. When we finally made it to the bridge that they were working on that was causing all the the construction traffic, I realized as I got to that, there's no way they could have done that at night. It would have been far too dangerous. And so then I had to have a Jesus, you know, come to Jesus moment right there on the road and repent, you know, of my sin and ask God to forgive me in that moment. And you know, that's what happens to us, guys, constantly. Every day we are surrounded by things that should cause us to be inspired by the awesomeness of God. But we get distracted by our circumstances so often and we miss it. Because we're only able to see and focus on the problem, the challenge, the the trial that is right in front of us. And because of that, we get robbed. And I think that is really a tactic of the enemy. He wants to distract us because he doesn't want us to get caught up in the awesomeness of our God. And when that happens, you know what? We become a generation of complainers instead of praisers. Now, as I sat there on Highway 80, the traffic on the other side of the road was moving really fast because they had already made it through the construction. 
And as I sat watching those cars zipping by, I began to think to myself, I wonder how many, for how many of them this is just their normal commute. This is what they do for work. They drive this, this road every single day. It's part of their routine. And, and I wondered, for, for so many of them, I wondered, uh, in having it become a part of their routine, did, did they also miss? Has it just become a drive now? You know, around them is just beauty and grandeur of God's handiwork. And I thought to myself, I wonder how many of them miss it. And then I thought, again, how often does that happen to us? We get so caught up in just the routine that we lose sight. We miss the glory of God that is around us on a daily basis. So here's what I want to do the rest of our time today is I want to share a few things that I find fascinating about God's creation and also something about our redemption that I hope will leave you today in a place of just being awestruck with God. That will leave you in a place today of just wanting to praise Him that will leave you in a a place today of just wanting to tell somebody how great is your God. I want to begin by talking about a couple of things from creation. I mean, we could talk all day long about this, but there's there's three things that that I've just been fascinated by the last couple of weeks. The first is bird migration. I find this to be fascinating. For instance, did you know the golden pulver travels from Alaska to Hawaii for 88 hours over the Pacific Ocean? We're talking 2,500 miles, and it flies that great distance without ever stopping once for food or rest. How incredible is that? Who put that into them to know how to do that? It was God. God did that. Or take the Arctic turn. The Arctic turn travels from the North Pole to the South Pole twice a year, which is a round-trip flight of more than 20,000 miles. Talk about frequent flyers, right? (laughs) Now, here's what's interesting. Scientists have tried many different experiments to try and confuse migratory birds. Instead of confusing the birds, the scientists themselves have become astounded that no matter how hard they try to trick them, the birds always follow the same migration patterns and they always leave on the same time. How amazing is that? Who built that into them to know how to do that? God did. It's amazing. How many of you here are fans of the Home Alone movie, the very first one, Home Alone? Okay, it's a Christmas classic, right? And it's a great, fun Christmas uh, Christmas classic. Did you know that there are six sequels to that? I didn't know that. At the resort we were staying, they had free movies, and so I'm looking at their list, and I see Home Alone, and there's six of them. And I thought, I mean, how many times can you tell the story of parents accidentally, you know, leaving their kid, right? Now, moment of truth, okay, you're in church, so you got to be honest here. How many of you have ever temporarily, even for a few minutes, lost one of your kids? Okay, all right. Keep your hands up, please. Take a picture. None of them can serve in children's (laughs) ministry, all right? Okay, (laughs) I'm just kidding. Okay, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever left one of your kids, lost one of your kids on purpose? Okay, (laughs) okay. 
Here's what's interesting. Imagine leaving a five-week-old to fend for themselves. We'd be like, no way, somebody call CPS? That is wrong. That's exactly what the Bristol-thighed curlew does. When their chicks are just five weeks old, when winter comes there in Alaska, the parents say, hey kids, it's too cold here. We're going to the tropics. And they leave their little babies on their own. The parents fly off over 2,500 miles to places like Fiji and the Hawaiian Islands, and they leave their little chicks to fend for themselves until they're strong enough to make the trip on their own. So the chicks gorge themselves in berries and insects as their little bodies become stronger, as they are building up this, this fat fuel for reserve. And then one day, the bird, these little birds launch themselves into the sky, and they find the right winds, and they head off on this long, nonstop flight of over 2,500 miles to meet up with their parents. And these little chicks, they do that all on their own without any guide. I mean, it's not like one of the parents volunteers like, okay, I'll stay behind this time and I'll lead them. No, they do it all on their own. How do they know how to do that? Because God has built within them. Scientists tell us that birds have a built-in compass and a built-in navigational system. Who put it there? God. Or take geese. You ever see geese flying? You know, sometimes we see geese flying around here, and they, you ever notice how they fly in a V formation? Why do they do that? Just because it looks cool? I mean, no. They do that to conserve energy. You see, what happens is they use the slipstream created by the bird in front of them to conserve energy that makes it easier that for them to fly a long distance. Our Navy jet fighters fly in that same type of formation to conserve fuel. And if you watch the geese, it's interesting. They take turns leading. Have you ever seen that? Like suddenly the guy's in front, he'll drop all the way to the back and somebody else moves up and they take, take turns. How do they know how to do that? Because God has built that into them to know how to do that. We could go on and on and on in talking about the migration patterns of, of birds and just how incredible it is that God made them. But, but let's move on. Let's talk about something else. Let's talk about the human eye. You know, it was Charles Darwin who was so troubled by the perfection of the eye that he once remarked that the whole idea of something so flawless like an eye that it could have been formed by natural selection seems, he says, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. That's Darwin. Another evolutionist, Robert Jastrow, said this, The eye is a marvelous instrument resembling a telescope of the highest quality with a lens and an adjustable focus and a very variable diaphragm or diagram for controlling the amount of light and the optical corrections for spherical and chromatic aberrations. The eye appears to have been designed. No designer of telescopes could have done better. How could this marvelous instrument have evolved by chance through a succession of random events? That's not a Christian saying that. 
That's an evolutionist because they're looking at the eye and going, okay, I give up. The design speaks of a designer. This couldn't have just happened by chance. And our eyes are amazing. Did you know that your eyes focus on 50 different objects every single second? Your eyes can distinguish approximately 10 million different colors. Your iris, which is the colored part of your eye, has 256 unique characteristics. Now, just in comparison, your fingertip has only 40. The eye has 256. Your eye is the fastest contracting muscle in the body, contracting in less than one one one-hundredth of a second. And the optic nerve contains more than one million nerve cells. The eye is the second most powerful organ in the human body, second only to the brain. And the eye can develop about 36,000 bits of information in an hour. It was John Blanchard who said this about the human eye. He said, the human eye is a truly amazing phenomenon. Although accounting for just one-fourth thousandths of an adult's weight, it is the medium which processes some 80% of the information received by its owner from the outside world. The tiny retina contains about 130 million rod-shaped cells which detect light intensity and transmit impulses to the visual cortex of the brain by means of some one million nerve fibers. While nearly 6 million cone-shaped cells do the same job but respond specifically to color variation. The eyes can handle 500,000 messages simultaneously and are kept clear by ducts producing just the right amount of fluid with which the, the lids clean both the eyes simultaneously in one five thousandths of a second. It has no cleaning mechanism. We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Amen? Now, we're just talking about the eye. I mean, we could talk for a long time about the brain. We could talk for a long time about the heart. For, for instance, let me just say this. There are, the, the normal human being has 5.6 liters of blood in our body. That's six quarts of blood, okay? Those 5.6 liters of blood circulate through the body three times every single minute, okay? Now, how far is that? The heart is pumping the blood through the human body every three minutes, and at the end of the day, the blood has traveled through our body 12,000 miles. That's four times across the United States back and forth. It's incredible. It's incredible. And when you get your your blood drawn, it replenishes itself. How amazing is that? We could go on talking about the wonders of the human body that would leave us in awe of God. The glory, the wonder, the majesty of his artistic and creative design. The design does speak of a designer. But, but just for a couple of minutes, humor me. Let's talk about our solar system. You know, the, the sun is this massive ball of fire in our solar system. And the sun converts 8 million tons of matter into energy every single second and has an interior temperature of 20 million degrees Celsius. And yet planet Earth has been positioned in our solar system at the perfect place. 
If we were closer to the sun, we would be fried. If we were further away from the sun, we would freeze up and there would be no life whatsoever. Earth has been placed in our solar system by God at the perfect place. And the earth rotates one complete rotation on its axis every 23 hours and 56 minutes. And that is not random. That is by design. You see, Jupiter, for instance, rotates every 10 hours. Venus rotates every 243 days. Now, if the Earth rotated every 10 hours like Jupiter, wind velocities on planet Earth would be extreme. The wind velocities on Jupiter sometimes can reach 1,000 miles per hour. So we're talking here on planet Earth, if we rotated like, like uh, Jupiter, it'd be like massive to the 10th degree hurricanes and tornadoes every day. It'd be crazy. If the Earth took 243 days to rotate like Venus, life could not exist because the days and nights would be too long and the, the cold and hot temperatures would be way too extreme. Here on planet Earth, oxygen comprises 21% of our Earth's atmosphere. And that, again, is a precise figure to make life on planet Earth possible. But there's other factors that contribute to the Earth's ability to sustain life. One is this. Where we've been placed and where Jupiter has been placed... Because of how massive Jupiter is, and because of its strong gravitational pull, all of these asteroids and meteorites that are constantly flowing through space, well, Jupiter is like a blocking mechanism that keeps those those asteroids from colliding into planet Earth. Jupiter's gravitational pull pulling them in. But it's not just Jupiter that protects us, it's also the moon. You ever seen pictures of the moon and you see all those craters on the moon? Why is that? Because it's been hit by these different asteroids and meteorites. In fact, the largest uh, crater in our solar system is on the south pole side of the moon. And get this, it's a crater that is 8 miles deep and 1,500 miles across. We're talking half the United States. But the moon, also like Jupiter, serves as a blocking mechanism. Why is that? Because God has put the earth in this precise place in the solar system to be protected. Again, it's another example of the divine design. It's another example of how great and awesome and and how, how full of splendor, the beauty and the creative genius of our God. We could go on and on and on, but... Let me just ask you this question. Do you know what God's greatest creation is? It's the Christian. Why do I say that? Well, Paul the Apostle wrote these words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He says, We are his workmanship. The word workmanship in the Greek language is the word poema, and it means his masterpiece. Now, now check this out. God never ever says about any of the planets, any of the galaxies, any of the solar systems, he never ever says, that's my masterpiece. 
God never ever says about any of the most beautiful places here on planet earth where you can go and see just majestic mountains or beautiful waterfalls or exotic place beaches. God never says, that's my masterpiece. None of those things that God has created ever get that title. God never says of any of the animals in the animal kingdom or the birds that fly in the sky or the creatures that live underneath the ocean or the insects and how intricate they are. God never says of any of them, that is my masterpiece. That title is only reserved for the Christian. And I want you to catch this. When he says that we are his workmanship, he's not talking about man in general. Don't miss that. Even though the Bible says that we have been fearfully and wonderfully made, and we are the most unique of God's creation, mankind is, because the Bible says that God just spoke the world into existence. God just said, you know, let there be light and there was light and let the mountains rise out of the oceans and, and, and they came out of the oceans and let there be rivers and let there be sky and let there be all these. God just spoke it into existence. In other words, what I mean by that is it was effortless. But the Bible says about man that God formed us of the dust of the earth and God breathed his very life into us. That God said of mankind, he said, let us make man in our own image. But when Paul writes that we are his workmanship, he's not talking about human anatomy, folks. He's talking about redemption. Notice that verse again, and we're going to emphasize another phrase in it. This is the key phrase. He says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Everybody say, in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in him. Listen, it's being in Christ that makes us his masterpiece. That God takes us from being in our sin, and he takes us out of our sin, and he places us in Jesus. And that's when we become his righteousness. The moment that you put your faith in Jesus. You see, to to, to bring this world into existence, all God had to do was speak. And it was. He just spoke. But to make a Christian, God had to send his only begotten son to leave heaven And come to this earth for the sole purpose so that he could go to a cross where he would die. And on his death on the cross, what was he doing? He was paying the price for the sins, the rebellion of mankind. You see, when man rebelled, God gave man one rule there in the Garden of Eden. And that one rule was to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And man ate. They rebelled. And when man did that. Sin entered into the world. And all of humanity was, you could say, diseased by sin in the sense that we just became a natural part 
of our existence to live in rebellion against God, to choose our own way. The Bible says that, that man went about and every man did what was right in his own eyes. That's, that's how we lived. It was ingrained in us, the sin nature, to live and, and seek to forge our own way apart from God. But God saw us in that place, doomed because of our sin, damned, to live in complete separation from him for all of eternity. And God did something about it. He says, I'm going to send my son to the rescue. I'm going to send my son to come to this earth and give his life a ransom for many. I'm going to send my son to come and pay the price for your sin and redeem fallen humanity back to myself. And that's why the Christian is God's greatest creation is because it cost him the most, his beloved son. And so the minute that you put your faith in Jesus and what he did in dying on the cross to pay the price for your sins and then rising again from the dead on the third day to give life to all who would embrace him, the minute that you do that, God takes you from being in that place of sin and being separated from him and doomed and he places you in Jesus and that's what makes you his masterpiece being in Christ we could say that he says of us that we are his masterpiece in the making because he begins that work in us that begins on the inside and affects our life on the outside but we go from that place of being doomed to being forgiven and being declared righteous in God's eyes and it's a work that God does it's not something that we And so only the Christian is given that title of being his workmanship. And Paul tells us there in Ephesians how it happens. He says in verse 8 and 9, he says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And the word grace there means undeserved favor. And I want you to notice that the psalmist here, He highlights for us as well the grace and mercy of God. Look at verse 8 and 9 again. He says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion. He's slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and His tender mercies are over all of His works. Now, the word mercy means not getting what you do deserve. We deserve hell. But God gave us mercy. The word grace means getting what you don't deserve. We deserved hell, and God says, I'm going to give you heaven instead. We deserve life, and he gives us death. We deserve hope, and, and, and or he, we, we, we deserve despair, excuse me, and he gave us hope. We deserve death, and he gave us life. That's our God. That's how he works. But it's not just in our salvation that his grace and mercy abound toward us. It continues. The Bible says his mercies are new every single morning. And again, the psalmist, he he writes about this in verse 17. He says, the Lord is righteous in all of his ways and gracious in all of his works. The Lord is near to all who would call upon him, all who would call upon him in truth. And here's what I want you to catch. Your God, so big, so majestic, so awesome, so full of power, loves you. And he is for you. And he is near to you. And this is why, friends, it's so important that we see him in his majesty because when we see him in his majesty, you know what happens? Our problems get small. 
when we see him in his glory, our, our, we see our problems in, in light of who he is. And it brings us to that point where we're like, I need to call upon my God because your God, he's for you and he's with you. But notice it says that those who call upon him in truth. What does that mean? Well, that's admitting our desperation. It's admitting our despair. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't given your life to Jesus, you're not a Christian here today. You're not a Christ follower. That's the beginning place. It's coming to that place where you you recognize truth. I'm a sinner and I need a savior. I'm doomed and I need to be saved. And the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, he'll save them. And I want to encourage you today to call upon him. Maybe you're here today and you are a prodigal. You've walked away from God. You followed him at one time, but you, you walked away. You've been living on your own. You've been doing your own thing and living in rebellion against God. And I just want to say, how's that working out for you? You know, my experience is that doesn't work out very, very good. There's moments. The Bible does say that sin is pleasurable for a season. It has its moments. But once you get to that point when you're, you know, by yourself and you're suddenly stuck with the despair that is there in your heart because you know that you are not right with God, well, know this. You got, the song says, call out to him. He's near. Call out to him in truth. You tell him, Lord, I've rebelled. Lord, I've, I've sinned. Lord, I'm far from you. And you call out to him and he's going to rescue you today. He's going to welcome you back into his arms today because that's who he is. This great, majestic, awesome God desires that we would know him and live in relationship with him. How incredible is that? Let's pray together.